Close. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Really happy to be here tonight. Um, and tonight I'm going to talk about Bill's story. So Bill's story has like a whole bunch of things that he tried that didn't work. And then what ultimately did. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on the illness stuff because I want to get to the good stuff, right? The miracle part. Um, if you have your book and you want to follow along a bit, Bill's story opens on page one and he talks about going to war. And he says, I was part of life at last. And in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. And later on, he says, I forgot the strong warnings and prejudices of my people concerning drink. I was lonely and again turned to alcohol. So here's a couple of things that didn't help him. Changing circumstances. Things were really bad. So he turned to alcohol when he was lonely. And then though, he says, I was part of life at last. You know, life was hilarious, exciting. Life was good. And he turned to alcohol. So if we think that changing our circumstances is going to help us recover, it probably won't, right? Imagine someone with cancer saying, I think I'll move from New York to LA. That will make my cancer cells stop multiplying. But of course it won't. We take our physical illness with us wherever we go. And unfortunately, we take this disease of compulsive eating with us wherever we go. Um, the second thing that Bill says he tried that, well, that didn't work is he says, I forgot the strong warnings I'd heard, um, right? It's like, if someone says to me, look both ways before you cross the street, because if you don't, you're gonna be roadkill. I'm gonna remember that, right? I'm gonna look both ways before I cross the street. Or if their doctor tells me to get over pneumonia, make sure to take the antibiotic twice a day, I'm going to remember and take that antibiotic twice a day. But something as important as alcohol and the dangers of it, which caused Bill to like lose jobs, lose everything pretty much, he says he forgot the warnings. Well, how can he forget? Um, we've talked about this before. If you've heard me talk about it before, it'll probably take about three minutes. So go get a cup of coffee and come back in three minutes. <laughs> the connection between our memory and our conscious mind is broken when it comes to food. For Bill, when it came to alcohol, for people like us, when it came to food. Um, so here's the way I understand it, right? Normally, there's a connection between my memory and my conscious mind. I do something dangerous, like sit in the sun too long and get a sunburn. The next time I'm about to go to the beach, um, and I grew up in Miami Beach, so this actually happened. I'm stored in my memory or all these data points of sunburns. So as I'm when I'm about to go to the beach, when I got older, when I was a kid, I didn't care. When I got older, it was like, I better put on sunscreen or I'm going to get a sunburn. My memory of really bad sunburns kept me protected. Or you, you all know I have a cat allergy. So if I'm around a cat, I'm liable to have an asthma attack. So stored in my memory or data points of cat-induced asthma attacks, cat-induced sinus infections, cat-induced snotty nose and runny eyes. So if I'm about to go someplace where there's a cat, 
my memory grabs a data point, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger, cats will get you sick. And I don't do it. But yet when it came to food, it didn't work. Stored in my data point, in my memory were all these data points of, you say you're just gonna have one, but you eat the whole box. You say you're just gonna have one scoop, but you eat the whole carton. You say you're gonna have one slice and you eat the, we know how it goes. But there I go about to have one bite, one scoop, one slice. And the, so my memory grabs the data points, generates a thought to run across a bridge to say, stop danger. You won't be able to stop it. One bite, one slice, one scoop. You're gonna eat all of it. You're gonna gain weight. You're gonna hate yourself. Don't do it. Except unlike with sunburns and cats, the bridge is broken and the memory can't get across. The warning cannot make it across to my conscious mind where I make my decisions. Um, so again, when Bill, he'd heard all, I'm sure many times alcohol is bad, but it couldn't make it across the bridge to stop him. Strong warnings of other people or even our own memories of pain didn't do it. So there's poor Bill. He goes to war, he comes back from war and he goes to law school. And what happens to him? He says, at one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or to write. Now, I went to law school um, and in law school, most classes, 100% of your grade is based on how you do on that one exam. So this is pretty important. So I would say number three, the third thing that didn't work for Bill is necessity. Bill needed to be sober when he took his final exam and he still couldn't. Necessity didn't help. So if I say, well, I need to lose weight so I can, you know, fit into that nice dress at the, you know, someone's wedding, or I need to lose weight because the doctor told me my blood pressure is dangerously high, or I need to lose weight and stop throwing up because I'm damaging my esophagus and I just can't stand myself anymore. It didn't matter. Necessity didn't work for people like us. I knew throwing up wasn't healthy. I ended up having to have surgery on my esophagus that kept me out of work for a month. That's how much damage I did. Necessity doesn't do it. So Bill finishes law school and then he says, the law is not for me. He was interested in business, man after my own heart. Goes to law school, doesn't practice law. Um, so there he is. Life is really good for a while. And then what happens? The stock market crashes and things get bad but he was okay for a while. On page four, we hear him saying, I was determined to win again. And the next morning I called a friend in Montreal and went to Canada. So again, he's trying the geographic cure, but he's able to stop for a short period of time until page five, where he says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. See, at some point, I mean, maybe we could have stopped. A lot of us can think back to the time where, yeah, maybe I could have stopped if I wanted to. Um, by the way, I couldn't. I can think back to age four, already obsessing about the snacks they were serving in nursery school. Um, but here was Bill and he says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And once we cross the line where it's a necessity, we can't save ourselves anymore. We need to be rescued. 
Bill compares it to being in quicksand or it's like an undertow. We can't rescue ourselves anymore. And he says, things got worse. He lost his home. But then he said, I got this great business opportunity. And he's like, things are going to work out. And then he went on a prodigious bender. I never, I didn't look up that word prodigious. I guess it means really bad bender. Um, and he says, and that chance vanished. So here he is. And what does he do? He says, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. So he knew his alcoholic threshold, which was zero. Um, it's like when we say we know our alcoholic foods. Okay. He knew his alcoholic drinks. Um, and he said, I can't have one drink. He said, I'm through. And this is what he said. I had written lots of sweet promises before, but my wife happily observed this time I meant business. And so I did. So the fourth thing he tried was commitment, really meaning business. It doesn't help. Um, I mean, think of our poor cancer patient who traveled from New York to LA um, and has cancer cells who's multiplying and says, now that she's in LA and not getting better, says, this time I'm committed to make my cancer cells stop multiplying. I really mean business. Our hearts would break because we would know that no matter how sincere that person was, they couldn't do it. They don't have the power. Commitment doesn't do it because lack of commitment isn't our problem. Our problem is lack of power. So what happens to poor Bill? He means business, but he keeps getting drunk. And he says, bottom of page five, I began to wonder if I was crazy for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that, a lack of perspective, thinking I can do things time and time again that I should know that I can't do. Um, I like to run and sometimes I still think I have the knees of a 20 year old. So I'll go for a run or I'll do some like heavy squats or leg presses and I'll come home and um, have to ice my knees and not work out for a while because I'm not 20 anymore and I can't work out like I'm 20. So sometimes I have a little lack of perspective at the gym, but it's not dire. I ice my knee and I'm fine. But with Bill, it was kind of dire. Um, because what happens on page six? He says, one day he went to a cafe to use a telephone. Not really smart. It's like someone who's newly abstinent walking into haagen to use the phone, which is all the way in the back of the ice cream store. No, not a good idea. So what happens to Bill? He gets drunk. But being an addict, what does he tell himself? He says, I'll manage better next time but I may as well get good and drunk now. So number five is what I call the pillow cure. I can do whatever I want now because I'll be able to start tomorrow. Eight hours with my head on a pillow and that will suddenly give me the power that I didn't have before. So the pillow cure or the I'll start tomorrow syndrome, it doesn't work. So what happened the next day? That magic pillow didn't work and he says the remorse horror and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. You know, normally remorse, horror, and hopelessness convince us we shouldn't do something again, right? So I mentioned like I had the experience or actually my son now 
um, he's playing tennis and he had a tennis tournament last weekend. And on Monday he called me and he said he was all blistered all over and he had sun poisoning. Um, and, you know, instead of a nice little tan, his skin's peeling off and his face is bright red and he's in pain. So next time he's at a tennis tournament, I would think he's going to put on sunscreen because he doesn't want to go through this again. Then again, he's a 21 year old boy, so it may take him a couple times. Um, but for an alcoholic or a compulsive eater, remorse doesn't help. What's remorse like? What is it? It's feeling strong guilt. That doesn't do it. What's horror? Looking at ourselves like gaining weight or throwing up all the time. That doesn't do it. And feeling hopeless. That doesn't do it. The only time hopelessness is good is if at the right moment when someone feels hopeless and they get that they're hopeless for good, someone presents them with a solution. But plain old feeling hopeless and horrified, what that does is it usually just ends with us feeling self-pity. And as my friend Roxanne says, self-pity parties usually end with a cake. <laughs> so, so for two more years, he goes on like this, two years. He steals from his wife. He tries all sorts of things. He goes to a hospital, page seven. He's at, getting out of the hospital and he says, understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hopes. For three or four months, the goose hung high. Again, I have no idea what it means, the goose hung high. It's a very bizarre image, but I assume it means things were just fine. And Bill says, I went to town regularly. I even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. So two things here. Bill had a desire, but a desire without spiritual help doesn't work. Anyone with cancer has a desire for her cancer cells to stop multiplying. Desire alone doesn't work. And then he says, this was the answer, self-knowledge. Well, that doesn't work either. Um, you know, imagine again, the person who has cancer, she knows exactly how she got it. Um, but let's say she knew, let's say she says, I live near a toxic radiation waste site and that's what gave me cancer. Okay, so what? Now she knows why she has it. It doesn't make it go away. And for us knowing, and by the way, we never can know why we got this. Usually we try and um, blame someone, usually our parents. Um, but as our book tells us, it's not what happened in our life. It's the way we, we reacted to what happened in our life. Self-knowledge does nothing. So page eight, we see again, along with remorse, horror, and hopelessness, he adds three new things, loneliness, despair, and self-pity. And how does Bill describe his bottom? Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. And he still didn't stop because here's another thing that doesn't work. A first step alone. A first step alone does nothing. I can admit I'm powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. That alone gets me nowhere, does nothing, right? Our cancer patient admits she has cancer and her life is unmanageable. Does anything change? No, nothing changes, unfortunately. And then the next thing Bill tries, he says, trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. 
fear sobered me for a bit. And then he drank again. So the next thing is fear. So a doctor telling us that if we don't lose weight, we're going to have a heart attack, that doesn't do it. Um, some of you guys may have heard me say, I met a woman once at an OA convention, she was diabetic and her doctor had told her if she didn't stop eating compulsively and lose some weight, it would affect her eyes and her kidneys. When I met her, she had a seeing eye dog because she was blind and she was on dialysis waiting for a kidney transplant. Fear doesn't do it because fear is not from God. So again, if we think of an illness like cancer, if someone says to our cancer patient, you know, if you don't make your cancer cells stop multiplying, you may die. I mean, can you imagine that cancer patient saying, oh gosh, I'm so glad you gave me that information. And now I'm really scared. Okay, now I will be able to make my cancer cells stop multiplying. No, no that never happens because fear doesn't do it. It isn't from God, so it can't help. So here's poor Bill. He's tried everything. And he just says, everyone became resigned to the certainty that, that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. But then look at the turn of the story. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch, my last binge. I was soon to be catapulted. I love that word catapulted, not I took myself. I was catapulted. I was rescued. He says, I was catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. And I think of the Wizard of Oz, where it goes from black and white to color. And guys, life really does become color. So before at the top of the page, he had loneliness, despair, and self-pity. And now what does he have? Happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Because just like this illness is progressive, recovery is progressive. So once we get into recovery and start living this way of life, it keeps getting better and better. So let's find out how it happened, how God launched his search and rescue mission for Bill Wilson. Let's set the scene. I was a theater major. It's November. Bill is, if you're up in New York or New Jersey, it's cold. If you're down here in the Carolinas, it's nice and warm. Bill's drinking. He's in his kitchen. He's thinking, how am I going to keep drinking? And the phone rings. And it's an old friend he used to drink with asking if he could come over. Now, Bill was in New York at this time, so he probably had a jacket on. Um, his friend did not live in New York. It, in fact, it had been years since his friend, Ebby, had come to New York. But Ebby just happened to be in New York. And he just happened to call Bill and say, hey, Bill, can I come over? And Bill, he doesn't care about Ebby one bit. He doesn't think, I haven't seen my friend in a while. Maybe he'd like to see the Statue of Liberty. Maybe I should take him you know, out down to Little Italy for dinner. He just says, we can drink together. Great, I don't have to drink all by myself. This is an oasis, this is wonderful. So remember, Bill Wilson was drinking and he was planning on drinking more when Ebby came to his door. And he didn't knock on his door and say, Bill, you're drinking. I'll come back when you have a certain amount of hours sober. And by the way, Bill didn't do that when he met Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob was drunk and planning on staying drunk. 
So anyway, Ebby went in and he talked to him and he looked at him and Bill said something was different. And he invited him in, pushed a drink across the table. Here, have a drink. And Ebby says, no. And Bill says, what has gotten into him? Bill says he wasn't himself. Of course, he didn't look like himself. He didn't act like himself because butterflies don't look like caterpillars. Ebby had been transformed. See, God isn't in the fix it up a little bit business. God is in the transformation business, caterpillar to butterfly stuff. So Bill says, okay, what's going on? And Ebby says, I got religion, no sugarcoating God, no worrying that if he says the word God, Bill will kick him out. Um, so let's be clear though, what the definition of religion is. Um, says the belief in and the worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. So he didn't talk to him about church, synagogue, high mosque. He talked to him about the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. So when we say God, as I understand him, it's not doorknob as we understand him or light bulb as we understand him, because the definition isn't the belief in of a superhuman controlling light bulb. It's a personal God. Now I might conceive of God differently than you conceive of God, but I think we can all agree that a light bulb is not a superhuman controlling power that can be personal to us. So again, Ebby didn't sugarcoat anything. He didn't dummy it down so it would appeal to Bill. And he didn't give God some pet name. And he just said, I've got religion. And Bill's reaction, he says, I was aghast. He was shocked. Like, what the heck? He used to be an alcoholic crackpot. Now he's a religious crackpot. But whatever, let him rant. My gin's going to last longer than his words. But Ebby didn't rant. He just quietly said he'd been really drunk. He was about to be committed for alcoholism and two men appeared in court and persuaded the judge to suspend his commitment. And one of the men who persuaded the judge, I mean, how do you do that? Imagine, you know, you're in court before a judge and someone walks out of the stands and says, your honor, don't put this man in jail. I'll take care of him. But one of the two men who appeared in court just happened to be the judge's nephew. And his uncle, I'm sure, knew he was a recovered alcoholic. And so when his nephew said to him, judge, just give us a little time. We know we can help him. Um, the judge said, okay. And they said the two things that would help him, a simple religious idea, again, religious, not in the sense of church, synagogue, mosque, the sense of a relationship with a personal God, a simple religious idea and a practical program of action, clean house, clean up our past, help others. And they said, so Ebby said that was two months ago. And the result was self-evident, two months. I know in some programs they say, you can't sponsor till you've been abstinent X number of days or months. They didn't do that here. Here it was just, have you gone through the process? Have you gone through the steps? Early on, they didn't have the 12 steps. They did things in the Oxford group. So then they had six steps for a while, but you have to go through the basic process of surrendering your life to God, cleaning up the wreckage of your past, committing to help others and living a life of prayer, meditation and service. 
and it worked. So fast forward 60 days from the day the guy begged his uncle to let him try and help this drunk. And here's Ebby thinking, who can I help? I mean, talk about a spiritual experience and a change of heart. Who can I help? Then he's like, ah, I'm in New York. Let me call this guy, Bill. I remember Bill's a drinker. So anyone who is binging now, if you start working this today, you can be recovered and sponsoring by Thanksgiving. Um, you can be knocking on someone's door, carrying a message of hope. You can be the butterfly that they're looking at. So Bill says, Ebby came to pass his experience on to me if I cared to have it. And he said, I was shocked, but interested. And that here's what he says, top of page 10. Certainly I was interested. I had to be for I was hopeless. So if someone comes around and they don't feel hopeless, they're like, yeah, it'd be nice to like lose 10 pounds, look good for my high school reunion. They're probably not going to be interested um, when push comes to shove because this program is a lot of work. But when someone is hopeless, we want them to feel hopeless. We don't want to tell people, oh, don't worry, it'll get better. You know what? It doesn't get better. I was going to meetings um, and came into OA. I was first throwing up. I don't know, twice a week, six and a half years later, I was throwing up, still going to meetings up to six times a day and needed major surgery on my esophagus. Just going to meetings didn't make anything better. I got worse. So here's Bill and Ebby is talking to him about God. And Bill says, I've always believed in God. I've always believed in a power greater than myself. I often pondered these things. I wasn't an agnostic. But when it came to a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut. So he believed in God, but not a personal God. He was what I would call a practical agnostic. And that's how I was. I believed in God, but it made no difference in my life. It's like if I was diabetic and I believed that insulin could help me, but I never injected it into my arm, it would make no difference. Um, so again, I was like Bill, I believed in God, but I wasn't interested in anything he had to say to me. In fact, I really didn't think he would have anything to say to me, that he would want anything to say to me, but I was wrong. So here was Bill in that position. Um, and how did Ebby describe God to Bill? Love, superhuman strength and direction. We need all of this, right? Um, we need a God, if God is just power and direction, but doesn't care about me, how am I ever going to feel safe enough to turn my will and my life over to him? And if God is love and direction, but doesn't have enough power to overcome this illness, well, that doesn't do me any good. And if God loves me and is strong, but doesn't give me any direction, any guidance, then I'm going to be sunk at times. But this God that we have access to is all three. And then he talks about the role that religion played in his life. And Bill says, yeah, I adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. And I mean, isn't that how a lot of us use our religions or use these 12 steps? We'll do the parts that are convenient and not too hard. And yeah, I don't really need to do this part that's kind of difficult for me. I don't have to be honest because that's hard. I don't have to help sponsor people because I'm scared. Mm-mm. So Bill had to start doing some soul searching. He was saying, okay, I want to believe in God, 
but there's some things that get in my way. So he had some legit things he had to deal with. Remember, he'd been to war. So he said the war, the burnings. I can only imagine, you know, seeing that burnings. Like, did he see towns that were burnt out? He said, these things made me sick. And he says, judging from what I'd seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss. So Bill had witnessed a lot of calamity and he was stuck. Like, why is there all this suffering? And he earnestly questioned it as some of us do. What did Ebby do? He didn't do what I probably would have done, like getting into this great theological debate about, well, does God cause suffering or does he just allow it? Ebby doesn't do any of that. He's way smarter than me. He just basically said, Bill, I don't know. All I know is that God is good. And when I surrendered my life to him, the obsession to drink was just taken out of me. And, you know, I guess that's how I have to deal with certain things now. Like, I don't know why God allows human trafficking. That breaks my heart. Like, why doesn't God just smite all those traffickers, you know, with a plague of boils or something? I don't know. Like, why did my dad suffer with Parkinson's and my mom nurse him to health and then get stricken with Alzheimer's? I don't know. And I have to be content with this side of heaven. I won't know. Um, hopefully then I will but not now. And that's okay. God's got a plan and it's okay if I don't understand it. So what does Ebby do? He simply tells Bill that God did for him what he couldn't do for himself. He said, I had admitted defeat. So after admitting defeat, he says, I had been raised from the dead, right? Isn't that us in the illness, like living dead people? Ebby said he was suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. He was rescued, rescued from a scrap heap into a life of meaning. And he says, has this power originated in him? Obviously not. He said then on um, the power hadn't originated in him. On page 55 of the book, it says deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. We have the idea of God in us, but we're not God. God is a separate entity, they're saying. And Ebby's saying he had no power. He said, there was no power in me, but there was a power that I could access. And that's all I need. I don't generate electricity, but I can access it. And because he knows he's helpless, Bill is open-minded and he's like, maybe these religious people are right after all, because this isn't the same Ebby that I knew. And he says, I love this line. My ideas about miracles were, were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. Great tidings just means good news. When we think of miracles, I mean, we think of things like, I don't know, Moses parting the Red Sea and the stuff we learned in Sunday school. But Bill's saying, yeah, that's all in the past. Well and good for Sunday school, but here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table, a man who was once one way and now is another way totally. That's the kind of miracle I'm interested in. He saw that Ebby was totally different. Page 12, he says, his roots grasped a new soil. It's like he had a root transplant. He became a different person, but he's still not sure. You know, it's like, uh, it's a little prickly about God. And his friend says, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And he says, that did it. He says, 
All I had to do was be willing. Nothing more is required of me to make a beginning. So willing to believe that there's a God. What does that mean in practical terms? How can I be willing to believe? And I think it means we can say a prayer like this. We can say to God, God, I don't know if you exist, but I'm willing to believe you do. And I hope you do. And if you do exist and you care about me, like these people say, I really need some help. And in the meantime, I'm going to live my life the way I think you would want me to if you existed. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to help others. I'm going to hope and pray that you're real. And if you are, please help me. So willingness. We can be willing to believe that there's a God who can restore us to sanity. And Bill says, I was convinced God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. Okay, what does it mean to want God enough? Enough to do the work, not sit there and say, okay, God, I'm willing to believe you exist. Now you come out of your bottle where I keep you, be my genie, do whatever I want, and then go back in your bottle. No, we have to be willing to do what he wants. And how does Bill describe it? He says, at long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. He says, how blind I had been. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from his eyes. Imagine that, like someone with, you know, two big like blotches on their eye, one called pride and one called prejudice that blocked him from seeing God. What's pride? Thinking too much of myself or thinking of myself too much. And prejudice, thinking too little of others and thinking of others too little. And Bill says, yeah, when I was younger, I wanted and needed God and he came. I sensed his presence, but it was blotted out by worldly clamors. So one way to blot God out um, is to be too concerned with my own things, my clothes, my job, my family, everything about me, worldly clamors, instead of the things God wants me to focus on. So then Bill went to the hospital um, and he tells us why because he showed signs of delirium tremors. That's why he went, because it was physically dangerous for him to withdraw without medical help. And he says there, right there in the hospital, he humbly offered himself to God as he then understood him to do with him as he would. He said, I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. So it's God, I believe you're good, or at the very least, you can't mess up my life any worse than I've messed it up myself. So take all of me, not just my food, take everything. I place myself 100% under your care and direction. And then what did Bill do? He cleared away the wreckage of his past and look how he describes it. I ruthlessly faced my sins. So he recovered in the Oxford group. They called them sins. We call them character defects, same thing ruthlessly. So he was hard on ourselves. Being hard on ourselves gets a bad rap these days. You know, our therapists are always saying to us, um, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. Or we talk about perfectionism. So then when we call someone, you know, and do a 10 step and we say, oh, it was my perfectionism why I did that. It's a subtle way of getting our fellows to say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. But Bill says, I ruthlessly faced everything. It's okay to be hard on ourselves because we know that once we ruthlessly face these things and go to God and ask him to remove them and make amends, we're good. We're good with God. There doesn't have to be any shame or guilt. 
but we have to be ruthless in facing these things. And Bill says, once he did that and he made his amends, that's it. He didn't drink again. And he just gives us a little advice. He says, okay, I have this new God consciousness within. That's the promise of this program. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Common sense becomes uncommon sense. That's a result, a fruit of working this program. Um, and then he tells us how to handle doubt if we're not sure what to do. He says, we sit quietly um, asking, that means praying, only for direction and strength to meet my problems as God would have me. So when we're not sure what to do, we don't pick up the phone and call 17 people. We generally call one person. And if I call my sponsor, she will generally say, did you go to God first? And then Ebby tells him, when you do these things, you will enter upon a new relationship with your creator and have the elements of a way of living which will answer all your problems. And I think that's the mission statement of this big book, to get a new relationship with our creator where he's God, I'm not, and I'm surrendered to him. And by working this program, I have the elements of a way of living which answer all my problems, my marriage problems, my work problems, my kid problems, my food problem, my health problem, all my problems. So Bill then tries to sum up what's necessary to recover. Belief in the power of God, not the existence of God, the power of God, plus willingness, honesty, and humility. If we have willingness, honesty, and humility without the power of God, then we're just doing self-improvement work. And um, it, I didn't have the power to improve myself. I couldn't stop eating on my own. I couldn't stop being a nasty person on my own either. So it tells us, okay, it's simple, but not easy. We have to pay a price the destruction of self-centeredness. The root has to be destroyed. Remember when he saw Ebby, he said his roots grasped a new soil. And Bill's in the hospital and the thought came. I love how it says the thought came. It's like God's directing his thoughts already. He said the thought came, there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They in turn might work with others. Well, little did he know what was about to happen six or six months later. This time he was away on business. He was in Ohio um, on business. And the thought there came to him, this thought he'd had came to fruition six months later because he freely gave to Dr. Bob and helped him. And they in turn helped AA number three and on and on to us here together on a Monday night. And I want to highlight the bottom of page 14. I think one of the most critical paragraphs in the big book, it says, faith without works is dead and how appallingly true for the alcoholic and the compulsive eater. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through, and if it were in the fill in the blank, I would think it would say through prayer and meditation, but it doesn't. It says through work and self-sacrifice for others, he couldn't survive the certain trials and low spots ahead and would surely drink again. Guaranteed to drink if I don't enlarge my spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. Now, other people may be able to enlarge their spiritual lives through prayer, meditation, other things. And believe me, I'm not knocking prayer and meditation. That's essential. There's a whole step about it. But we're people who grow spiritually through work and self-sacrifice for others. That's how our spiritual muscles grow. So Bill says, yes. I went, I did this work. He says, but sometimes I was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. 
So guys, it doesn't mean that once we do this work, we're going to just feel on cloud nine all the time. We're still going to get resentful. We're still going to get self-pity. And he says, but when all other measures fail, so I'm assuming he did a 10 step, looked for his part, says work with another alcoholic would save the day. It's a design for living that works in rough going. You know, it's like there's Fords and there's Chevys and they're made different ways. And there's different things, you know, that cause them to run just a little bit differently. And I think, this is my opinion, when God made us addicts on his assembly line, he created us in such a way that when we're plagued with self-pity and resentment, helping others will make us feel better, will make us feel amazingly lifted up and set on our feet. So he commences with a few final things. He says, the joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. So they're telling us we can be happy even when things are hard. They say bad situations, hard situations don't define us. They don't dictate our happiness. And he says, there's scarcely any form of trouble and misery which hasn't been overcome among us. That's what's so beautiful if we have this problem. There's probably someone among this fellowship who's had the same problem and maybe has even mastered it and can help you along so that when you master it, you can help the next person along. Page 16, last page of the chapter. He says, an alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature, but it's our job to love them anyway. That's the measure of my spiritual experience. I can tell that I need work when I look at people who are struggling and I don't feel love for them. That's when I know I need to do some more spiritual work. And I realize I have a long way to go in my spiritual development. And then they say recovery is fun. Yeah, we're in earnest, but we should have fun. Like we shouldn't be coming to meeting with long faces. We come here, it's fun. And, you know, I put my lipstick on because it's fun. And they say, but underneath faith has to work 24 hours a day. And they, then he says, we don't have to look any further for utopia because we have it. What's utopia? An ideal place. And he ends by saying, each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen when he was drinking and planning on drinking more, but his friend intervenes or God intervenes by sending his friend. He says, my friend's simple talk in our, my kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And I think we are people who should always just feel so blessed and grateful that we are part of that circle. And with that, I pass. Thanks.